My name is Cheryl, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Cheryl. Good morning. And my sobriety date is October the 4th, 1996. Um, as it says and how it works, I'm supposed to tell what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, I was born into a family with an alcoholic father and a rageaholic mother. Um, I was the middle child. I had a sister 10 years older and a brother one year younger. And uh, needless to say, it was an interesting place to grow up. Um, my mom was, back in the 50s, you didn't have kids in your 40s. It's pretty commonplace now, but my mom was 41 when she had me and 42 when she had my brother. So that made life kind of interesting because she grew up on a farm and she was a very old-fashioned lady. And um, needless to say, I always felt like I was born into the wrong family, like somehow I was sent from another planet and the aliens dropped me off because I never felt like I fit in. Um, growing up was different. Uh, my mother was a very hard worker. She worked in a factory, and my father was a city bus driver. And um, for as long as I can remember, I was very defiant. And it was like, tell me that something is black, and I'll prove to you it's white. That doesn't set well with my, you know, when you're growing up. Um, my mother used to, was a great cook. I mean, she was a farm cook, and she was a great baker. And I, looking back on it, she used to make this cake at Christmas time called Poor Man's Cake. And um, I always loved that thing. Today they're called fruit cakes, but this was called a poor man's cake. And she made it in a sheet pan, and she would poke holes in it with a toothpick. And then she would proceed to pour as much whiskey over it as she possibly could. And she would let it marinate for a week. She'd ice it with cream cheese frosting. And I was always the first one in line for a piece of that cake. <laughs> like I said, looking back on it now, there was something to that cake that I really, really liked, you know. And I would always scrape out the bottom of the pan when it was done. Um... And I didn't realize at the time what was going on. I was uh, 14 when I took, when I made the conscious decision to take my first drink. And I was over at a girlfriend's house and we were going to pierce our ears. I wasn't supposed to do that, but I was going to do it because I wasn't supposed to do it. And that's back when you used a needle and a cork and an ice cube. And her mother, I can't say that her mother was an alcoholic, but her mother was passed out upstairs. <laughs> kind of an indication there. Um, but her mother drank a lot, and uh, she also liked to do Valium. So we went upstairs, and we got the vodka, and we mixed us a little drink so that we could loosen up before we pierced our ears because we knew it was going to be painful. And she looked at me, and her boyfriend had called her. Now, this is at 14. Her boyfriend had called her and broke up up with her and she he lived in another city called Carmel, Indiana which is north of where we lived and she looked at me and asked me if I knew how to drive a car and I said of course I know how to drive a car been driving for years <laughs> you know and so her mother had a brand new Camaro back then so we got in her mother's brand new Camaro drove to Carmel, Indiana I learned how to drive a car that very night and um got back and her neighbor across the street had seen us take her mother's car and he had managed to come over there and get her mother from being unpassed out and of course I got in a lot of trouble for that when I got home but alcohol was involved in that and anytime looking back on on 
the past. Anytime I made a decision that was alcohol-based, it was always a bad decision. It was never a good decision. <laughs> you know, I can't remember one decision that was good when alcohol was involved. Um, anyway, I graduated from high school, and I was told from the time I was 14 that the day after I graduated, I better have a place to live and a job. And I did have, and I moved out the day after I graduated from high school. And I worked two jobs, had a job at Blue Cross and Blue Shield in Indianapolis from the time I was 16 because I worked after school for them, and they hired me on full-time after school. Um, drinking really didn't pick up too much then. You know, after 14, I think I had one more drink when I graduated, and that was it. It wasn't a big presence in my life back then. But as soon as I graduated and got out on my own, it became a big presence in my life. And um, I worked and partied, and that's pretty much what I did, but I always showed up for work. I never called in sick. I mean, you know, I was a responsible person, I thought. Um, but anyway, it progressed on, and um, I found myself um, at 18 years old pregnant which was not good, and my mother always told me if I got pregnant before I got married, she would kill me, and I believed her because she never said anything to you that she did not mean. So I drove to Ohio, a neighboring state, and called my mother on a payphone to tell her what I had done. And um, anyway, I lost that baby, and I was always looking for something outside of me. I never felt that I fit in. I always wanted a man to fix me because I knew if I could find the right man, then my life would be perfect. And because um, my mother always told me, you need a man to take care of you. I'm thinking, my dad didn't take care of us. You know, he was always passed out drunk, you know, when he wasn't working. So anyway, I believed that, you know, and I believed that if I could just find a man, I would be okay. Well, that didn't work. Um, and I ended up divorced and um, on my own again, still in search of. And a guy was, uh, I lived in this house that his mother had apartments upstairs and he introduced me to um, things other than alcohol because I had never tried things other than alcohol and I was 20 years old. You know, I really hadn't been a party girl until I met him and then it all just kind of hit the fan and um, we ended up married. His mother told him that he was not to marry me and I was to leave him alone, so we ended up married because he was as defiant as I was, even though he wasn't an alcoholic. And um, I had two boys, and my drinking kept getting worse and worse and worse. And um, I didn't think it was a problem. I just didn't want to be like my mother. My mother, she could have a take, you know, like two sips out of a drink, and that was it for her. She just wasn't a drinker. But I was, and I didn't realize that alcohol was a problem at the time. Uh, I had an aunt who used to be a runway model, and um, she was an alcoholic too, come to find out after she passed away, but we would always go out to visit her and my uncle, and she would always be upstairs in her bedroom with a sick headache. I didn't put two and two together until much later in my life, you know, after she passed away and things got revealed because in our family, you just didn't talk about things. You know, you kept secrets and you never told anyone what was going on behind the walls in your home because that would bring shame and um, 
dishonor to your family. So we were taught how to keep secrets from an early age. Um, anyway, I had the two boys, and and I wanted to party. I was only in my 20s, and I had two kids. And I wanted the kids because I thought that would help my husband be a better provider. And I wanted to be a good mother, but I didn't know how. So I went on drinking and working and trying to take care of two kids and got disgusted with it. And the drinking to me at that time and the partying was more important than a husband or my kids. And uh, it took me about a year to make up my mind, but I walked away from my husband and both my boys. And um, I still regret that today, but I can't go back and change the past. Um, I have a relationship with my sons that's kind of off and on today because one of them's never been in the program. The other one goes in and out of the program, kind of like I did in the beginning. But anyway, I found this other guy. I was working full-time and found a part-time job at a liquor store. It's a great place for an alcoholic because you get a discount. You know, um... Anyway, I ran into him, and we hit it off, and uh, he didn't drink like I did either. I've never married an alcoholic man. They've always been moderate drinkers. They have one or two, and I would finish the rest. I always had them to take care of me when I'd get passed out or get sick or something. But um, anyway, he uh, and I got together. We moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then he had a job opportunity in Georgia, and I did not want to live in Indiana. I hated Indiana. I hated being that close to my family, and I just knew, I just knew if I moved, if I did that geographical cure and got away from my family, I would be okay. I wouldn't have to drink because they wouldn't be there to drive me crazy. Well, so we moved to Georgia, and the drinking got worse. Um... His brother and sister-in-law were big party animals like I was, but they didn't party the same way I did. Um, it didn't seem like anyone around me partied the same way I did. I never found, in, found anyone who drank to the level that I drank. And I always looked, never found them. They would always stop when they got to a certain point, and I just couldn't. Um, so anyway, we moved to Georgia, and... Um, then he and I had a falling out, and um, as a matter of fact, um, when I drink, I was a lot like my mother, and I can say that today and be okay with it, um, but if anyone told me, especially if I had a drink in me, that I was just like my mother, those were fighting words, but I had the rage and the anger just like she did, and especially when I would drink. Um, and it wasn't a good thing. He and I got into it one night, and um, this is not something that I'm proud of. It's just part of who I was then. Uh, I ended up sending him to the emergency room, and um, he decided that we needed to part ways <laughs> for some strange reason. Um, but I moved back to Indiana. I called my sister, and she and my brother-in-law came down and moved me back to Indiana, and I went to my first AA meeting, uh, in 1983, and um, 
walked into this meeting, and there were a bunch of old people in there. I mean, I was only in my early 30s, and all these people had gray hair and white hair, and I thought, I am in the wrong place. You know, and it was in a church, and they were all, I mean, you know, I think the youngest person in that room, because the way they did the meetings at that particular meeting, they went around and said how long they had sober before they started the meeting. They introduced themselves and, and told how much time they had sober. And I think the least amount of sobriety in that room that night, except for me, was 10 years. And I'm like, you people got to be doing something in the bathrooms. <laughs> they were laughing. They were cutting up. They looked happy. They looked peaceful. And I was so miserable that night. I was so hungover. And I just, I didn't tell my sister where I was going. I just got in my car and found an AA meeting because I thought, Maybe, just maybe, I might have a problem. But I looked at all these people, and I was just so, it was like, I still got a good another 20, 30 years of drinking left in me, you know? <laughs> maybe, just maybe these people can teach me how to drink like a lady. That must be what they do. You know, because how can you be that happy without alcohol? I didn't understand that for a long time. So this lady and her husband came over to me after the meeting because I was getting ready to run out the door and she introduced herself her name was Genevieve Gardenier and her husband Theodore and they helped start the Fort Wayne Indiana group and I did not know that and when I met her she had like 30 some years sober and I'm thinking there is no way you know I want to drink right now <laughs> so her and her husband took me home and force fed me the big book and orange juice and <laughs> they kept me for a few days they called my sister I gave my sister's phone number and they told her where I had been and where I was and they were going to keep me for a few days to make sure I detoxed okay but I mean they would sit there with me for hours and hours and talk and read out of the big book and, and like I said it was force fed because what they were saying, in a way, it made sense. But I was still stuck in that. But I'm only in my 30s. I can't be an alcoholic. You know, I still have parties left in me. And um, they were just, they were great, great people. And uh, I kept in touch with her for quite some time. And um, lo and behold, I had about 90 days. And my husband had called and said, well, I want to come and get you and bring you back to Georgia. If you're in AA, you know, they have AA meetings down here. I've checked them out for you. You come back. And Genevieve looked at me and she goes, you don't stand a chance if you don't stay here for at least six months. She said, you need that. And of course, I know what's best for me. <laughs> and um, I didn't listen to her. And I came back down here and... Um, I think I stayed sober about three more months. I was going to Rebos at the time. And um, then Tom's brother and sister-in-law knew that I was in recovery and was trying to stay sober. And they wanted me to stay sober, believe me. They wanted me to stay sober. So they sent home cocaine as my Christmas present. Because they thought, surely, surely, that would not hurt me. It's not like, she's not going to be like she is when she's drinking. And I put off doing that for a few days because I just knew that it was the wrong thing to do. But, you know, alcoholic thinking went out over that, and I was back off to the races. Um... I tried another geographical cure because Georgia was a geographical cure. 
And once again, my husband and I split up, and I moved to St. Thomas. And I thought, well, if I go to St. Thomas, surely I could stay sober down there. <laughs> well, that's where I found out they had $2 a bottle rum. <laughs> I mean, for a fifth of rum, $2? I mean, come on. Um, so that didn't work. That geographical cure didn't work, and I came back to Atlanta. And I started going to meetings. I still wasn't convinced that I was an alcoholic. I still wanted to drink and to party because I thought that's where all the fun was. And I would go in and out of the rooms. I would stay sober for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, uh, six months. And then I met a, a man and his wife in the rooms that uh, I really admired. And I really liked her. She and I were an awful lot alike. And I thought, you know, maybe, just maybe, because I've never been able to put together an honest year. Um, if I work with her, because I'm so much like her, that just maybe I might have a chance of getting sober. And that was back in 1993. And um, it was... Frank and Carol, that was their names. And they used to go to Sober at 6, and I used, they used to sit in the same place. And I would watch them, and I would listen to them during the meetings. And I respected both of them. And um, I had gone to dinner after a meeting with both of them a couple times, and I had called Carol on the phone. I still didn't have a sponsor. Wasn't drinking, was going to the meetings. Still wasn't thoroughly convinced I was an alcoholic, but I knew something wasn't right. So um, I called Carol up one night, and I said, I have something I need to ask you about. And she <coughs> said, wait. She said, I know exactly what you're going to ask me. She said, you need Frank. She said, because we are so much alike, we'll kill each other. So she put Frank on the phone, and I know it goes against what AA recommends, but Frank became my sponsor with his wife's blessing because he was also in OA, and he, he was used to sponsoring women. And I had a great deal of respect for Frank, but Frank pulled no punches. We got into the big book, and um, he just he was what I considered back then brutally honest with me about what I needed to do and what I was, what he considered that I was, but I had to find that for myself. And we worked together just about every day. I talked to him, and once a week we would sit down and we would start in the big book and we would go through it and we would go through the steps and we would talk about the honesty of the first step. And that one I really, really had a hard time with because it was hard for me to be honest with myself about who I was and what I really was and what the problem was. And the problem was me. It wasn't the rest of you people not behaving like I wanted you to. The problem centered in me and my acceptance of the fact that I was an alcoholic. So he and I worked together, and um, I finally got a year sober. Actually, I wouldn't ever consider myself looking back on it. I, I had a year dry because I was still defiant, and I questioned everything he tried to tell me. And I would go to different people, and I would look for a, a different answer. I would ask them the same question I would ask him. And unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you want to look at it, the people that I went to told me the same thing he did because they, too, were sober. You know, and... Um, 
So I finally quit going around trying to find the answer that I wanted to make me feel better. Um, so Frank and I worked together, and I finally felt like I was sober, like I had this program by the tail. I know the big book backwards and forwards. Today I couldn't tell you what page anything is on except for how it works. I don't have the big book memorized today, and I don't want to memorize it. Um, but Frank and I worked together, and lo and behold, I got two years. And by the time I had was coming up on my third year, I thought, man, I can do anything I want. I was going out to dinner with people. I was chairing meetings. I was sponsoring people. I just thought I was the biggest deal in AA. <laughs> you know, that saying we're legend in our own mind comes to uh, mind right now. And I was because I thought I had this thing booked. That was the longest I had ever been sober. I had been through the steps with him. I had told him my deepest, darkest secrets, and he just laughed at me and said, is that all you got? And I knew I could tell him anything because I knew that his background was a heck of a lot worse than mine. You know, so he wouldn't be surprised. And when we finished my fifth step and he said, is that all you got? I was like, what do you mean, is that all I got? Those are the worst things I've ever done. And he's like, okay. So he wasn't surprised by anything, but he always used to call me his big lump of coal. And I didn't like that. But he said, you know what they do with coal? He said, if we put enough pressure on it, it turns into a beautiful diamond. And he said, all you are is a big lump of coal. You just need the right pressure to turn into a beautiful diamond. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so thinking that I had this program down pat and I was invincible, <laughs> Um, I made a spiritually and moral choice that was incorrect. And it didn't have anything to do with alcohol or drugs, but uh, Frank called me on it and he said, do you know what you're doing right now? And I said, no. He said, you are writing, you are signing a blank check because you don't know what price you're going to pay when that check comes due. I can handle it. I know the book. I'm sponsoring people. You know, I got this done. You know, I'm, I'm perfect at this. There was no humility that first three years. So, um, needless to say, reality set in. The walls came crashing down. And um, I drank. I couldn't deal with the guilt, the shame, and the remorse from that spiritually, morally incorrect decision that I made. And it was very hard to go back to meetings because several people knew what I had done. And I felt like I was being judged. In reality, I was the only one judging me, and I was the one carrying the guilt. And, um, but I called my sponsor that night. I mean, I had consumed half a gallon of bourbon and some other things on the side, and I couldn't get drunk. I could not change the way I felt. I couldn't get rid of the guilt. I couldn't get rid of the shame. I couldn't get rid of the remorse. Emotionally, I was a mess. And uh, I called him and I said, I can't get drunk. I wanted to get drunk and pass out so bad, and I couldn't. And it had been three years without a drink. I thought half a gallon of bourbon, should I should pass out real quick. It didn't work. And that was God. Today I can look at that and go, that was God doing for me what I could not do for myself. But I called him up and he started laughing. He said, well, does that tell you something? I said, what do you mean, does that tell me something? He said, you can't get drunk. It's not working anymore. 
you need a different solution. So I went to a meeting the next night because I wasn't going to drive after consuming all of that. I didn't want a DUI. Went to a meeting that night or the next night and picked up a chip, and he was there to support me. And no one in that room said, leave. No one said, get out of here. No one came up and said, you did a horrible thing. Everybody just said, keep coming back. And so I did. And so my sobriety date changed from what it was before then to October the 4th, 1996. And I think that was the best thing that could ever have happened to me because when that blank check came due, I paid the price. Today, I am not willing to sign a blank check. I stay in the book. I do what is suggested of me. Now, I do not work a perfect program today. And several people can testify to that. At times, I can still be belligerent. I can still be defiant. I still sometimes want to do things my own way. But that doesn't last as long as it used to. You know, we went through the steps again, and I thought, you know, okay, this time I'll only have to do them once. And Frank just laughed at me. Mm -hmm. And he said, how long do you want to stay sober? And I said, one day at a time for the rest of my life. He said, well then stop trying to work the promises and hope that the steps come true. Let's get into the steps and let the promises come true. So that's what we did. And I was at every big book study in 12 and 12 and every meeting I could possibly go to <coughs> because I really wanted to stay sober. But he told me it required a few things, and that was that I had to change everything about me. And I still laugh about that today because... Being a girl, I thought, okay, I can change my makeup, I can change my clothing, I can change the color of my hair, you know, I can change the kind of guys I date. Um, but that's not what he was talking about. It's about changing my insides and getting honest with myself and with other people. You know, I can, I can sit and be honest with myself, but unless I'm willing to open up to God and to another human being, being honest with myself is not going to get me anywhere because then I'm still between my two ears. So we started in with the steps again, and we started my journey one more time. And um, unfortunately for me, right before um, my ninth birthday, Frank passed away. He had had heart surgery a few years before, and he had like a quadruple bypass, and when he had that heart surgery, they told him to get his affairs in order because he had maybe a year, maybe 18 months. Well, he lived for 10 years, you know. And I'm grateful for the time that I had with that man. Um, unfortunately, when he passed away, I didn't want to drink, but I didn't want to be around anyone. People in the program tried to gather around me to support me. And I didn't want it. Because that was the first person in recovery that I had ever been really close to and really and truly loved that had passed away. And I didn't know how to deal with those feelings and stay sober. It's like, how do you do that? How do you go through that kind of pain and that kind of emotion and stay sober? 
So I kept hearing Frank's voice in my head, and I went home and I grabbed my big book, put myself in the bedroom, I was living alone, and just sat there and held my big book. It's not the same big book, this is a newer one, but still, this is like my security blanket. When things get tough for me, I know there's an answer in here if I'm looking for it and if I'm asking for God's help. And I would just sit and hold my big book. And I made it through that. You know, we got, we had Frank's memorial service and um, I managed to stay sober through it. I didn't want another sponsor. I did not want another sponsor. And that was kind of the first dry spell I went through in recovery. And then I was going to meetings. I thought, okay, let me change where I'm going to meetings because that'll change the way I feel. And that's still alcoholic thinking as far as I'm concerned. But I was going to other meetings, and um, I was talking to this other guy and his wife. And uh, come to find out he had triple bypass surgery and had a heart condition. <laughs> And it's like I asked him to be my sponsor because I thought, okay, I know what's going to happen here. I'm prepared for this. <laughs> and we went through the steps his way. And he was from uh, Maine. And they did things differently up there than we do down here, than I had been taken through the steps down here. So I learned a lot from him, from him and his wife both. And they both were kind of co-sponsoring me. Um because he would look at me and he'd go, if it's a female thing, take it to Donna. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> he just didn't do female things. Um, but they were good people. And um, I isolated for about six months after Frank passed away. Um, and I lived in a secure apartment, so no one could get in to see me unless I buzzed them in. So I felt safe, you know. Um, but I didn't drink. I knew I was dry, and I knew I wasn't really working a program. So, anyway, um, I fired those sponsors, um, went through several. I just wasn't, it wasn't frank. It just wasn't frank, and I couldn't open my mind enough to see that people are still in recovery, and they're going to help me one way or the other. So, um, anyway, I went through several sponsors, and I was sponsorless for a while, and I was dry, and I was miserable. And so I found a new sponsor, whom I still have today, and I dearly love her. Um, she has helped me tremendously. Um, in recovery, I managed to get this job um, through a friend in recovery, quite by accident. It's a part-time job, and, and I was looking for another job. And... Um, because I didn't like slinging coffee at Barney's. That was to help a friend in the program out, because I needed a job. She needed a night manager. So that's what I did for a while. And um, so I got this job at a little place called American by Attical. And we used to have to answer the phone, American by Attical Services. And people on the other end of the phone would go, American Viagra? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Has nothing to do with Viagra, I promise you. But we were a Viatical statistical company. And I was there for two days and got hired full time because they appreciated my work ethic. And that's what this program gave me. I suited up, I showed up, I did the best job that I could possibly do. Um, and I was there for 12 years. 
and I got to work with people in the program. Prior to getting that job, I did have a recovery bookstore called <coughs> Serenity Corner. It was down at 92 in Bells Ferry, and I loved that bookstore because I met a lot of people in recovery. They would come in. They would sit down. We would talk. I had recovery books in there and different different kinds of books and tokens and all kinds of stuff. But it was <coughs> it was interesting because I don't like talking to people. I'm really pretty much an introvert. I like to call it an observer. It sounds more, you know, kosher. Um, but uh, the first day that that store opened, I had everything set up. So I was in the far back corner of the store. And I sat there that first day and prayed that no one would come into the store because I didn't want to talk to anyone. <laughs> that's no way to run a business, but that's just that's just where I was, you know. But every day people would come in and they would sit down and we would talk. And, and they taught me a lot about myself and about them, taught me how to be a good listener. And it was interesting, the people that I met in, in this program. People would come from all over the place just to come into that store. And I knew when I went on that, that job interview at ABS, two of the people that worked there had been in my bookstore, and I thought, am I supposed to say something? <laughs> and I didn't know the owner until um, I met him that day, but he was all for people in recovery. He supported everyone in recovery. If you needed a meeting during the day, you just went to him and you said, I need to go to a meeting. He's like, go. Come back when you're done. It's like, Okay. So that was, it was a great job for 12 years. But what this program has given me and the things that this program has taught me, um, it has taught me how to deal with life on life's terms. There was a guy in the meetings at the Howe Place when I used to go there at the Breakfast Club who used to say, treat everyone with honor, dignity, and respect, whether you think they deserve it or not. And I tried to do that. And in this job, working with recovering alcoholics was nice because if I was off, you know, I could go talk to them. And it was just a nice little family-friendly business. And I was the tenth person hired at that job. And in that job, I learned a lot of things. I learned how to conduct myself in a professional manner. I learned how to uh, be a good manager, department manager. And that's all because of this program. That's some of the gifts of this program. You know, um, one of the other things was that after, well, the, the original owner ended up selling the company. And the new people that owned the company came in and they made their own rules and stuff. And, you know, it was different because it was no longer a small family-like company. We went from 10 employees within the first five years that I worked there to 85 employees. And that small, friendly feeling was gone, and now it became professional, and you had to dress business casual. And when I started there, you could wear shorts and a T-shirt to work, you know, and it was nice. Um, but I just, you know, I've learned through this program <clears throat> that working these steps and asking my higher power for help and acting as if, and doing the next right thing, the things that have kept me sober, those are the things that have kept me sober. Treating everyone with honor, dignity, and respect, whether I think they deserve it or not, it doesn't matter what I think. It's what God thinks about them, and quite frankly, that's none of my business what God thinks. Doing the next right thing, being involved in the program, 
Anyway, after 12 years, I was laid off from that job. And I was devastated because thanks to that job in this program, I was able to buy a house. And I'd never owned my own home before. And when they told me I was being laid off, it was like, I'm going to have to sell my house. And I was okay with that. They also said, we would like for you to come back and train your replacement. <laughs> if that had been when I first had gotten sober, you know, the words that came out of my mouth would never have come out of my mouth because I said, sure, I'd be happy to. I want this business to succeed. I want you all to be happy. That's a gift of this program, <clears throat> is being able, in the face of adversity, being able to still act like a lady, conduct myself in a professional way. And I went back for three days and um, trained the girl who took my place. And it was hard walking in there. It wasn't easy. It was a fear of people talking about me. It was like, you're only going to be here three days. Whatever they say, you're never going to know after you leave, you know. And so I did. I went back and I trained the girl who took my place and went about my business and uh, I was angry when I left there and I went home and I uh, had hardwood floors in my home and I was <clears throat> not happy with God and I was letting him know about it because you know I was making good money I was buying my house I thought my life was set and I was working a program and um, I had a throw rug on the floor and I was angry and I was just telling God off and I slipped and I fell and I landed on a shredder a paper shredder that I have and I injured myself and I sat on the floor and just cried because I thought that's what the anger gets me I try not to get to that point where I'm that angry anymore um, so I was injured and it took me about three or four months to recover because I had bruised my hip really bad and my tailbone and was walking with cane. Couldn't look for a job, so it's like, okay, God, what do we do now? So I sold my house and moved, and um, it was very hard to do that. I had to get rid of a lot of things, but in that process, one of the things I have learned, you know, it talks about in... Uh, the sixth tradition, money, property, and prestige. For me, that's not where it is today. I have less today than I did 10 years ago. And I'm happier today than I was 10 years ago because it's not about the material stuff. For me today, it is about my recovery, how bad I want to stay sober, and how connected I am to God, and how much I'm willing to do to help other people. So... It has been an awesome journey, and I have learned a lot. And the thing about it is, is I've done, I've walked through fear in this program because, I, and I have talked to several people over the years, and especially recently, I talked to a lady that has 30-some years of sobriety, and I said, do we ever outgrow fear? She said, no, you just learn how to walk through it and whistle, you know, and just act as if, put one foot in front of the other. <clears throat> because I still have expectations for myself that it, at this long sober, I shouldn't have fear. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. And that's the lie that I still tell myself, you know. And I try not to shit all over myself anymore because it's just, it's the wrong thing to do. 
You know, today when I get into those places, I have a network of women and people in this program that I can call and I can get guidance and direction from. Walking through the fears is probably still the hardest thing that I do is to recognize that I have the fear and to be able to walk through it. Is it comfortable? No. Do I enjoy it? Not particularly. But I'm not the only one doing that. I'm not unique in this program. And for a long time, I thought I was unique in this program. You know, and um, I was going to the 8 o'clock meetings, and there was a guy coming to a few of the meetings, and he came up to me one day after the meeting. And this has been several months ago before I started going back through the steps again. And um, he looked at me one time after a meeting, and he introduced himself, and I don't remember his name. I mean, it was just kind of like, boom, I don't remember. Um, but he said, you know, I've been watching you. And I thought, why? I got something on me, you know, my drooling or something. I didn't understand what he meant. And he said, no. He said, I've just been wondering when you're going to sit in that place that you always sit and spontaneously combust because you're so daggone dry. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not dry. I'm sober. And after he said that, I went home and I thought about that. And I called my sponsor. And she said, well, yeah. You are kind of dry right now. <laughs> Dang, I thought I was hiding this stuff so well. <laughs> and that's the one thing I've learned in this program. I can't hide who or what I am or how I'm really feeling in this program because people can see right through you. You know, just like I can see through other people, they can see through me. It works both ways. So um, I talked with my sponsor and then um, got together with Denise and we started going back through the book in a different way than I've done it before. And it has truly, truly helped me. You know, um, it has given me more insight into the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's given me more insight into my own recovery. And it's giving me more insight into who I am today. And um, I still know, or at least for me, and I'm just speaking for myself because this is my core belief, is... I will be done working this program and I will be completely out of fear when they start throwing dirt in my face. Because for the rest of my life, this is a program that requires action on my part. I've tried doing this program without taking any action and it doesn't work. I become miserable and so do the people around me. I make sure of that. Um, so I'm better off when I'm in this book and working a program. And um, I had no idea what I was going to say today, and I know that's pretty short, but um, I really do appreciate y'all asking me to share my story today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.